Well, my name is Andrew. It's good to see you all. I serve as one of the pastors here, and I have the privilege of leading us uh, through our study of the scriptures tonight, uh, this first Sunday of the Advent season, where we join Christians all over the world by uniting our minds' attention and our hearts' affections and considering what the coming of Christ means for us as we look back to his birth this Christmas season, while at the same time looking forward and anticipating his second coming, as we know that Advent is a word that literally means coming, and so we're celebrating the coming of Christ um, this Advent season. Now, one of the, uh, our celebration of Advent this year centers on the beautiful book of Ruth, and so if you have your Bibles, take them out, open them up to the book of Ruth. If you've been journeying with us the past few months, you know we've been walking through a rather uh, dark book, uh, the dark book of Judges, and we haven't finished that book yet. We're going to come back to it once Advent is over, but at right now, we're going to take a brief detour through the book of Ruth, and you're going to see why uh, we're doing Ruth uh, along the way. You see, Ruth is an Old Testament book, perhaps one of the most moving stories in all of Scripture. It has all the elements of a love story. We're talking about tragedy, loss, despair, triumph, hope, loyalty, romance. It's all there, but it's not just a love story stretched across four chapters of Scripture. It's also a mini-story inside a much bigger or grander story, that this is a unique story that advances God's epic tale of redemption, the one that he has scripted from before the foundations of the earth, it culminates with the sending of his son Jesus to live and to die and to rise again, to redeem and refine for himself a people like you and I. And so the book of Ruth, in many ways, illustrates what King Jesus would come to accomplish, but it not only illustrates what Jesus would do with its themes of redemption and hope and life and restoration, but it's also a book that anticipates the coming of Christ in some significant ways that we're gonna see as we journey through this book together. Now, the book of Ruth is a short book. Again, four chapters. It's a book that you could easily sit down and read straight through in one sitting. It would take you about 20 to 25 minutes. It would be a very good thing for you to do. In fact, Ruth is probably best read that way. But the way we're breaking it out over the course of the next few weeks is we're not reading the whole thing at once. We're gonna take our time. We're going to take one chapter at a time, and as we do so, you're going to feel, just in the narrative of this book, tension rising. And this is tension that rises as we journey through this book that you will find only uh, resolved in the end when, when the whole point of the book of Ruth comes to its climax um, in chapter four. So we're going to try our best not to get too far ahead of ourselves as we journey through this book, and we're going to allow the tension to rise in our hearts and our minds, and, and Lord willing, we're going to find that tension resolved as we study this book together, hopefully to see Jesus more clearly perhaps than we have seen him before. So before we dive into Ruth chapter one, let me say a prayer for us, and then we will do just that. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the book of Ruth. We thank you for the gift that it is to us during this Advent season. Thank you for the ways that this book anticipates the coming of Christ. Thank you for the ways in which this book illustrates what Christ will accomplish for us as our King and as our Redeemer. I pray that you would capture our hopes in this moment, that you would draw the gaze of our faith toward yourself so that we would rest in you despite whatever else we may be going through in this moment. Help us to find rest in you, the God who would send forth his son to live and to die and to rise again for us. God, we love you, and we were praying for your spirit to speak to us through the book of Ruth in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, uh, the book of Ruth, I love it for many reasons. One of the reasons is that this is one of only two books in the whole Bible that's uh, named after a, a female, named after a woman. The other book would be Esther. Perhaps you've heard of the book of Esther. But what makes Ruth unique is that this is the only book in the Old Testament named after a non-Jewish female. You're going to learn that Ruth was a Moabite. She was a non-Jewish person. And we'll discover kind of who the Moabites were as we journey through this book together in a few moments. But just to kind of give you your bearings on the book, one thing you have to understand when you step into a story like this is that one of the most important features of Old Testament narratives, whether it be the narrative of Ruth here in this book or any other narrative you read in the Old Testament. One of the most important features of these narratives are dialogue. 
Dialogue is where the money is, so to speak, when it comes to understanding what a story is about and why God has given us a story in the Old Testament. Hebrew narratives are all about dialogue. So you really want to pay attention to what the characters are saying to each other and what they're expressing in the story because they're revealing through their words kind of where they are in a given moment spiritually. They're revealing where they are emotionally. They're disclosing so much about who they are and in many ways they're disclosing a lot about who God is. And so you want to pay attention to the characters when they speak in this book. Now, you may find it interesting that 52% of the book of Ruth is dialogue. It is characters speaking. But what's really interesting about that is that of all the characters that speak in this story, Ruth speaks the least. And so the book is named after Ruth, although she speaks less than any other human character in the book. But you're going to find it even more interesting, perhaps, when you discover whose voice is missing in this book. Because the one voice you're not going to hear speaking directly or explicitly in this story is the voice of God. God doesn't speak in the book. There are no prophets in this story. There are no priests in this story. There's certainly no kings in this story. And so God is largely silent in the book of Ruth, but here's what we must guard against. We must not ever, whether it's through reading this book or just the only... um, Our own interactions with God as we are journeying through this world, we must never mistake his silence for his absence. God's silence does not mean he's absent. And God's silence doesn't mean he is inactive, that he's not at work, that he's not quietly working behind the scenes to accomplish certain ends and to accomplish certain goals. You see, God in this book is much like the conductor of an orchestra. The conductor of an orchestra orchestra makes no sound. They contribute no music to what is being played. But they are arranging all the pieces and they are leading all the musicians and all the sounds that they are making, the notes they are striking, the chords they are playing. They're arranging everything to accomplish and to present a certain vision. Where you're gonna find that God is like an or like is like the conductor of an orchestra in this story where he's arranging all the details of it. He's arranging all the details to accomplish a certain vision, to fulfill a certain script that he has written from before the foundations of the world. And much like when you go to a symphony, you're gonna hear uh, the conductor, really not gonna hear him, but you're gonna see him arranging the musicians to strike both minor chords and major chords. Major chords are, are pleasant sounding chords. They, they, they strike the ear very well. Very triumphant sounds come from major chords. But when they strike minor chords, it's a little more disorienting. Minor chords don't sound as uh, pleasing to the ear. They're a little sharper. They're a little dissonant. There's a little difference between minor chords and major chords when you go to a symphony. But the cool thing about a good symphony and the conductor of the orchestra is that he can wield both. He can arrange both minor chords and major chords to produce something beautiful. And in this story, you're going to find God doing the exact same thing. You're going to see God taking the minor chords of disorientation, some terrible things that go down in this book, and you're going to see him take the major chords of some triumphant decisions and some triumphant moves and decisions, and he's going to arrange them together to present a vision of himself and a vision of his redemption that should leave us floored, that should stun our souls. And so we keep this in mind as we jump into verse 1, because verse 1 kind of starts with a minor chord being struck. It's not a very pleasant opening to a story. Listen to what it says in verse 1. During the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land. Now, this is a tragic beginning to this story, because you know, as we've been journeying through the book of Judges, that the period of the judges, the time of the judges, isn't a very pleasant time. In fact, the book of Judges covers perhaps the darkest period in Israel's history. It wasn't a pleasant, faithful stretch for the people of Israel. If you look back one page in your Bible, you're going to see the last sentence written in the book of Judges, and this last sentence kind of summarizes what the period of the Judges was like. And listen to what it says in verse 25. At the end of the book of Judges, it says, In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what seemed right to him. Or you put it more literally, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So here you have a period of time where everybody is living a selfish life. Everyone is living a life for themselves, determining what is right and wrong to themselves, determining 
everything based on how they are viewing the world. Nobody is seeing the world from the Lord's perspective. Everyone is seeing the, Lord, seeing the world from their own perspective and acting accordingly. And what this means in the book of Judges is that this period was a time marked by idolatry. It was marked by immorality. It was marked by all types of, of dysfunctional things. The period of the Judges was a time of spiritual compromise and syncretism. And as you remember, as we've journeyed to the book of Judges, that the people of Israel suffered a lot because of this. Because everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes, there was a lot of conflict, there was a lot of dysfunction, and the people of Israel suffered mightily as a result. In fact, there's a pattern that you can discern in the book of Judges. We pointed this out when we started our journey through that book. And that pattern kind of follows this idea where Israel does what is right in their own eyes, and they betray their commitment to the Lord. In response, the Lord disciplines them, and his discipline in many times is quite severe. But usually his discipline would kind of sober the people of Israel up so that they would cry out to the Lord for deliverance. And at that point in time, God would respond. He'd raise up a judge or a deliverer to save his people from whatever they were being afflicted by and whoever was oppressing them. Now you think about that because God's discipline during the time of judges, it not only came through the, through, uh, by way of military force, it didn't only show up in Israel through the Midianites or the Philistines and these military forces that God would raise up and send to Israel to oppress them. There was another way that God's discipline would show up, and that was the way of natural disasters. This is why when you step into verse 1, it says in the during the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land. This is another form of the discipline of God that has befallen upon the people of Israel during that era. And we know this because earlier God would warn Israel that he disciplined them in this way if they didn't honor that special, unique, exclusive, covenantal relationship with himself. That if they didn't honor that, then this would be one of the consequences. So notice Leviticus chapter 26, for example. The Lord says to Israel there, I will break down your strong pride. I will make your sky like iron and your land like bronze, and your strength will be used up for nothing. Your land will not yield its produce, and the trees of the land will not bear their fruit. In other words, famine is a form of the discipline of God. And so the story of Ruth opens in the midst of divine discipline. It opens in the midst of divine, in some ways, displeasure. So it was a very disorienting time in the history of Israel, but we're told next that a man left Bethlehem and Judah with his wife and two sons to stay in the territory of Moab for a while. Now, Bethlehem and Judah is an important place in the Bible, and yes, this is the same town that Joseph and Mary would enter into when she's giving birth to Jesus, the Messiah. This is the same town where baby Jesus would be placed in the manger. It's the same locale. But we don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves just yet. So just kind of hold that thought. Ironically, Bethlehem is a word that means house of bread. But at this point, there is no bread in the land. There's a famine. So there's a lot of irony in what's being said. And because of this famine, this man and his son, they sojourn from Bethlehem to Moab. And there, now, there, there are two ways, basically, to interpret his decision to relocate his family. There are some who view this man's decision as an, in, as an innocent act of desperation. They think, okay, well, there's no food here. I've got to get my family to another place where there is food. And so they sometimes interpret this decision as an innocent act of desperation. But the other way to see his decision to relocate his family isn't so noble. Because many see this as an act of unbelief. And the reason why they would see this man's decision as an act of unbelief is because by leaving Judah, he was also leaving the people of Israel. And by leaving Judah and by leaving the people of Israel, he was essentially turning his back on the promises of God. He was turning his back on God's promises to not only discipline his people, but his promise to deliver his people. He wasn't sticking with it to lead the people or to be a part of the people crying out to the Lord for deliverance. Because God not only promised to discipline his people when they, if they betrayed the covenant, he also promised to deliver them if they would cry out for help. But not only does he leave Judah in this moment, we're also told, another reason why I think this is a, an act of unbelief is that this guy settled among some of Israel's old, oldest enemies. 
It says they go to the land of Moab and they start hanging out with the Moabites. Now, this is a big deal that can't be overstated. The Moabites were a people group in that day that traced their lineage, that traced their heritage back to an incestuous relationship shared between a guy named Lot and his daughter. Now, that strange story can be read about in Genesis chapter 19. And the Moabites, for many reasons, despised the Israelites. So much so that when later in the book of Exodus... God delivers Israel from Egypt. He's leading them into the land of promise. And there's a point where they have to go through Moabite territory, but the Moabites refuse to let them pass. They don't give him safe passage. And then you read another instance in Numbers chapter 25. There's this strange story about these Moabite women who came in and seduced these Israeli men. And they seduced them, they laid with them, they bedded them. But not only that, they led these Jewish men to worship their gods and commit idolatry. And in Numbers chapter 25, things don't go well. God's discipline falls and about 24,000 people lost their lives. But then more recent to the story of Ruth, if you remember back in the book of Judges, there was a guy by the name of King Eglon. King Eglon, he was the job of the hut of the Old Testament, this big uh, over, well, he was just a big king and, and uh, he wasn't very useful for many things, but he led the Moabite people. He was the king of the Moabites and he led them to oppress Israel for 18 years. And so this guy is responding to God's discipline in this moment by leading his family into foreign territory to be surrounded by foreign peoples who worship foreign gods. That's why I take verse one as an act of unbelief. I don't think it's an innocent move of desperation. I think it's a blatant move of unbelief. And we'll find out soon that there were others who remained in Judah during that time who didn't leave. They endured God's discipline. And as a result, they eventually experienced God's deliverance. So it goes very well for them. But sadly for this guy, that doesn't occur. This man doesn't experience the Lord's uh, deliverance. Because you look at the next verse and see see what happens. It says next that the man's name was Elimelech and his wife's name was Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They entered the fields of Moab and settled there. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died and she was left with her two sons. Her sons took Moabite women as their wives. One was named Orpah and the second was named Ruth. After they lived in Moab about 10 years, both Malon and Chilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two children and without her husband. You see, although this story is named after Ruth, in many ways what you're going to find as you read it over the next few weeks is that the plot concerns God's dealings with this childless widow named Naomi. This childless widow who followed her husband's faithless lead into a foreign land and dwelt there among foreign people and surrounded by foreign gods And while there, while in this foreign territory, separated from the people of God, she experienced tragedy after tragedy after tragedy. Essentially, she endures a 10-year nightmare, and not five verses into the story, you're dealing with a woman who's lost everything. Her husband, her sons. This means that she's lost her security, her family, her providers, her hope. She has lost everything in this moment. And it seems as though she's living under a curse. Because in ancient Israel, heirs and descendants represented divine blessing and favor. And at this point, there is no one to carry on her family line. There's no one to provide for her. There's no one to protect her. She's lost with nothing. And verse 5 makes this emphatic. Remember it again or check it out again. It says, Naomi was left without her two children and without her husband. She was a woman without. And so this story doesn't start well. It starts quite on a down note. It is a dark backdrop, but it is a dark backdrop that sets the stage for everything that God's gonna do on Naomi's behalf and on the people of Israel's behalf and ultimately on our behalf, especially when you step into verse six. Because even in verse six, you start to see a little ray of light shining through this this dark backdrop. Listen to what we see there. Verse six, it says, she and her daughters-in-law set out to return from the territory of Moab Because she had heard in Moab that the Lord, the Lord had paid attention to his people's need by providing them food. 
So while she's suffering in Moab, God is at work in Judah. He's fulfilling his promises to take care of his people. He's paid attention to them. And here's what I want you to think about in light of this. When it comes to the God that we're reading about in this book, and when it comes to the God that we worship and celebrate in light of the gospel, you have to know that God is sovereign over both famines and feasts. He is sovereign over famines and feasts. This means that God is sovereign over our discipline and he is sovereign over our deliverance. And we have to keep this in mind. Otherwise, when adversity strikes and we find ourselves enduring difficult seasons and difficult stretches in our lives, we're gonna go the way of Elimelech. We're gonna find ourselves abandoning the promises of God, abandoning the character of God, going to a foreign land and surrounding ourselves with foreign gods. We're gonna go the way of Abimelech if we're not keeping this dynamic in mind, that God is sovereign over famines and feasts. He's sovereign over discipline and deliverance. Now, when it comes to discipline, I would remind you of some of the ways that God disciplines his children that God disciplines us in, in two basic ways. His discipline sometimes takes the form of a corrective capacity or corrective discipline. And by that, that's usually the discipline you see taking place in the book of Judges, where the people of Israel are making terrible choices. God disciplines them to correct them, to wake them up to the reality of his grace and to the reality of his presence and of his promises. But then there's another dynamic of discipline in our lives, and that's what's called perfecting discipline. That sometimes God disciplines us not because we've made bad choices. Sometimes he's disciplining us simply because he knows what needs to change about our hearts. And so he disciplines us to perfect us and to refine us. A couple of places you can go to learn about this. John chapter 15. When Jesus gives the parable of, of the father and the vine, being the vine dresser. And there's this picture of God the father pruning our lives, pruning the vine, the vine so that more fruit can grow. That's the idea of the perfecting discipline of the Lord. But then Hebrews chapter 12 would also talk about this, that God disciplines us as his children because he loves us and he wants to, us to share in his holiness. So you have two kinds of discipline that you and I can experience in our lives, a corrective form and a perfecting form, and neither one of them are enjoyable Neither one of them are things that you really want to experience or enjoy as you're journeying through this life. Both of them are things that you will be tempted to resist. Both of them are things that may happen in our lives that cause us to want to retreat and to abandon the promises of God and the people of God, want to flee the presence of God and seek refuge in foreign territory. I wonder if some of you have been thinking about that lately. If some of you have been thinking about walking away from the faith because you've experienced too many hard things up to this point in your life. Now, some of the hard things you've experienced may be the result of terrible choices you have made, and so it's self-inflicted discipline that you've brought upon yourself. Others of you, perhaps you've suffered and you've struggled because of choices others have made, and that's not enjoyable either. And because of this adversity, because of this struggle and these hardships, you're tempted to walk away from the faith. Your trust in God is on the brink of collapsing. Maybe you are disoriented. And if that's where you are, I want you to hear. I want you to hear the good news of verse 6. Because Naomi eventually hears the good news of verse 6. In a sense, she hears a gospel. Verse 6 we're told that God paid attention to his people, that he came to their aid, that he hadn't forsaken Israel. And upon hearing this gospel, it began to do something in her. So in the very least, she wants to return. She wants to go back home. She wants to reconnect in Judah. And so this is what she does in verse six. It says that she left the place where she had been living, accompanied by her two daughters-in-law, and traveled along the road leading back to the land of Judah. And now you come to the first stretch of dialogue, the first time anybody speaks, and it's in verse seven. It says that Naomi said to them, referring to her two daughters-in-law, each of you go back to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to the dead and to me. May the Lord grant each of you rest in the house of a new husband. She kissed them and they wept loudly. Clearly, these women share a deep bond. And it makes sense that they share a deep bond. They loved each other. They've suffered together. And this bond that they shared was not easily broken. This is why 
The daughters would then say to Naomi, we insist on returning with you to your people. We don't want to abandon you. But Naomi replied, return home, my daughters. Why do you want to go with me? Am I able to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. Go on, for I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me to have a husband tonight and to bear sons, would you be willing to wait for them to grow up? Would you restrain yourselves from remarrying? In other words, don't stay with me. I have nothing to give you. She says, no, my daughters, my life is much too bitter for you to share because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Again, they wept loudly. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth, I love this phrase, Ruth clung to her. You may want to make note of that word, clung. It's the same word that Genesis 2 uses to describe what happens when a man leaves his family and a wife leaves her family and they cling to one another. They cleave to one another. They are bound together in a remarkable commitment of love and devotion. This is what Ruth is expressing to Naomi. I am with you, she says. Now Naomi looked at her and says, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Follow your sister-in-law. But Ruth replied, don't plead with me to abandon you or to return and not follow you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me and do so severely if anything but death separate you and me. Now that's one of the most lofty expressions of commitment and devotion that you're gonna read anywhere. This is the moment where the symphony begins to swell and major chords start to be struck. This is where a note of triumph begins to weave itself into the symphony of this story. Because Naomi has not lost everything. Ruth remains with her. Ruth is committed to her. Now, sometimes Ruth's words are used in wedding ceremonies. I don't know if you've ever heard that in a wedding ceremony, and sometimes these words are used in that context, which is fine, I guess, until you begin to think about where they come from, uh, that these words were shared by a daughter-in-law to her mother-in-law, and so then it begins a little, a little interesting or curious for these to show up in a wedding ceremony. And then it's even more surprising when you realize that rarely anyone uh, speaks to their in-laws like this. And uh, so it's even more remarkable and even more, even more striking. So it's an astonishing turning point in the story as Ruth has chosen to leave behind her land, leave behind her family, leave behind her gods, all that is familiar to her, all the sources of her security. She's giving her future completely over to this widowed, childless woman. And when she makes this commitment, do you understand that Ruth is committing herself to perpetual widowhood and to perpetual childlessness? And she's committing herself in this direction, not just in this life, because in ancient Near Eastern thought, where you were buried had huge implications for the afterlife. So when she makes this statement, Ruth is saying, I will be buried among you and your people under your God. Everything from this point forward is committed to you. And when Naomi realized Ruth couldn't be persuaded, she just gives up. She gives up and she actually gives her the silent treatment in verse 18. It says, when Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped talking to her. And at this point, I imagine Naomi just crossing her arms and pursing her lips and turning away, stomping off. I think Naomi would fit well in Seattle. She kind of has this passive-aggressive personality, and at times she'll have these outbursts, and so it's just really curious. I think she would be a really strong Seattleite. And so she gives her the silent treatment, walks away, and, and then verse 19, the two of them traveled until they came to Bethlehem. Could you imagine traveling with someone who didn't want to talk to you? This is an awkward car ride. And when they entered Bethlehem, the whole town was excited about their arrival, and the local women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? But notice what she says in verse 20. She erupts, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. She answered, for the Almighty has made me very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has opposed me and the Almighty has afflicted me. 
So upon returning to the small town of Bethlehem, Bethlehem was a small town. Everybody knew each other. There were deep connections in that small town. So it makes sense that when Naomi returns after being gone for 10 years, people would recognize her. And the moment they recognize her, they say her name, and this sets her off. It sets her off because her name, Naomi, means pleasant. It means lovely. And her life is anything at this point but pleasant or lovely. She does not believe this to be true about her, so she doesn't want to hear her own name because of all the suffering she's experienced in Moab territory, all the losses she's endured. So when she hears pleasant, lovely, she says, don't call me that. And there's a volcanic eruption exploding out of her heart, and she says, call me instead Mara because Mara means bitter. And in her mind, that's more true of who she is. And that's more true of how she is at this stage in her life. You see, Naomi was a realist. That's another reason why I think she'd probably fit in well in her city. After all, here's a woman who's suffered much. She's endured a 10-year nightmare, and now she's back home. But her afflictions have clearly taken a toll on her soul. And when she hears her name and she voices this, understand that she puts up no front She presents no pretense. She expresses honestly how she feels as a result of what she's endured. Her life has been bitter. Life for her seems empty. But notice, notice who she attributes her afflictions to. This is when the story gets quite heavy. She says the Almighty has made her bitter. The Lord has brought her back empty. The Lord has opposed her. The Almighty has afflicted her. What are we to make of that theology? What are we to make of Naomi's theology in that moment? Remember, dialogue is the most important aspect for interpreting Hebrew narratives. This is where the money is, so to speak. And four times in two verses, Naomi is speaking and she speaks about God in a particular way. And if you pay attention to what she's saying, she actually recalls two things that are true about God. She says true things about God in this moment. One, she reminds us that God is great or that God is the almighty. Now, the the word translated almighty there is the word Shaddai. You may be familiar with that word, uh, the El Shaddai, God Almighty. This is who she's referring to. And what she is saying in that moment is something very true about God. God is Almighty. In other words, God is sovereign. God is omnipotent. God is God Almighty. And that means that he's sovereign over all things, including, including our afflictions. You see, there's not one detail in the book of Ruth that doesn't fall under the sovereignty sovereignty of an almighty God. And the humbling reality is that there's not one detail in our lives that doesn't fall under the sovereignty of of an almighty God. And what Naomi says here is very similar to what Job would say in his story. If you're familiar with the story of Job, that's another man who endured suffering and hardship, who experienced adversity, And he suffered not because of anything that he did or any choices he made. He suffered by way of things that he had no control over himself. And things got so bad for Job, it's a remarkable book to read. But what's interesting about that book is the name, the title, El Shaddai, God Almighty, shows up 30 times in that book. In that book, dealing with intense suffering, God is referred to as Almighty. He's referred to as Sovereign. And there are moments in the story when Job responds to the Lord's dealings in his life in the very same way as Naomi in this book. Chapter 27 of Job, verse 2. Listen to what Job says. As God lives, who has deprived me of justice and the Almighty who has made me bitter? It sounds very similar to what Naomi says. Elsewhere, Job said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In other words, God is sovereign over feasts and he is sovereign over famines. In Job chapter two, verse 10, Job asks, should we accept only good from God and not adversity? You see, both Job and Naomi knew that God was great. They knew that God is almighty. They knew that God is sovereign over all things. Now, there are some who read Naomi's words and they interpret them to mean that her faith in this moment is weak. 
that she's expressing a weak faith with these words. But I do not believe her faith in this moment is weak. I believe her faith is real. I believe this is an evidence of real faith, and here's why. It takes real faith. It takes real faith to acknowledge the objective realities of who God is regardless of what you are subjectively experiencing in this life. I'll say that again. It takes real faith to acknowledge the objective truths of who God is regardless of what you are subjectively experiencing in this life. This isn't weak faith. This is real faith of a woman interfacing with this incredible truth that God is sovereign, that God is almighty, and she's trying to make sense of all the happenings in her life. She's honestly interfacing with the reality of God. And what I love about Naomi is that she doesn't use her sufferings as an excuse to try to redefine God. She's not responding to the hardships in her life saying, oh, I've got to step back and just rethink everything I've learned about who God is uh, from the people of Israel and the story of Israel, everything I've come to know about God being almighty and sovereign. She's not stepping back from her sufferings and taking the route of redefinition. And this is a very real temptation that is alive and well in the church today where Christian leaders perhaps have endured different forms of suffering and affliction and their response to their sufferings and their afflictions is to try to redefine God. And so they try to revision theology. They come up with systems like open theism and other dynamics that were explicitly developed to redefine God to make sense of suffering. But Naomi's not responding like that. She's not using her sufferings as an excuse to redefine anything about who God is. No, she recognizes God Almighty. And this isn't weak faith. This is real faith. I'll take Naomi's theology. I'll take Naomi's theology over the puny, sentimental theologies of American culture any day of the week. The puny, sentimental theologies of American culture that find expression in churches today where we try to comfort ourselves convincing ourselves with these statements like, well, God didn't know this was going to happen to you. Or we say things like, God was surprised by this just as you were. Or we try to comfort ourselves by saying, well, God is doing the best that he can. Some things are simply beyond his control, as if that is really comforting. Is it really comforting to know that God isn't sovereign over famines? Is it, really comforting to, is it really comforting to think that God has no say in what's going down in your life? If he has no say in what's going down in your life, then he can't bring life from what's going down in your life. There's no comfort in this puny, sentimental American theology that wants to reject the sovereignty of God. Naomi's not doing that. She's honestly interfacing with the reality of who God is, affirming his greatness, affirming his sovereignty. But she also, get this, she's not only focusing on his greatness. There's still an echo, there's still a memory of the goodness of God in her words. Because you look at verse 21 and you're gonna find her using the personal covenantal name of God twice. You may want to underline it or circle it. She says, the Lord, where it's translated Lord in all caps. That's the translation of Yahweh. That is God's personal name. It's the name that God disclosed to Moses at the burning bush. It's the name that God reiterated to the people of Israel time and time and time again. This is the name that God swore by when he promised to deliver his people. The Lord is a memory in her heart and in her theology of the goodness of God. So she's still thinking well about who God is. She's saying God is sovereign and God is good. But here's the challenge. Although she's remembering God's name and This name that speaks to her goodness, it seems that she's struggling to see the goodness of God in that moment. And we've all been there. We've all had moments where we can't see the goodness of God in the midst of our adversity, in the midst of the sufferings we're experiencing. One of my earliest childhood memories is of a time I was playing in a sandbox and a kid grabbed a handful of sand, threw it in my face, and sand got in my eyes and I couldn't see anything. The sand disrupted my vision. I was too disoriented to get out of the sandbox. And although my dad was there, I I couldn't see him. So I just kind of stumbled and bumbled around until finally the only thing I could do was sit in the sand and cry out. 
Well, there's a sense in which that's what Naomi's doing here. Sand has been kicked into the eyes of her faith. She can't see the goodness of God, even though she can still, in some way, remember God's name is the Lord. And she's thinking about the goodness of God, even in the midst of this outburst. She remembers God is good, but she just can't see evidence of it. And this is why she'll say, my life is empty. And she'll draw that conclusion that her life is empty. But little does she know, little does Naomi know in that moment that God's good provision for her future, the way out of her desperate situation was actually standing right beside her. God's goodness was there. She just couldn't see it. And it was there in the presence of this young daughter-in-law named Ruth. Verse 22, so Naomi came back from the territory of Moab with her daughter-in-law, Ruth the Moabitess. They arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. So she can't see the goodness of the Lord. She thinks her life is empty. Meanwhile, Ruth is right beside her. So Naomi is mistaken. She's mistaken to think that the great and good God of Israel has brought her back empty. She's mistaken in this moment. What do you think she would say if she could see that in Ruth, if she knew in that moment that Ruth would soon gain a grandson. And this grandson would be the grandfather of a guy named David, the greatest king of Israel. And David, the greatest king of Israel, would foreshadow and lead in lineage to the coming of the greatest king, the king of all kings, the Jesus, the one whose birth we are celebrating, whose coming we are celebrating this Advent season. What do you think Naomi would say had she realized who Ruth would become and who Ruth would be revealed to be? What if Naomi could have read Matthew 1, the beginning of the gospel of Matthew where the lineage of Jesus is laid out? And as she opened up to Matthew chapter one and she's reading the names listed there and she sees Abraham fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered Jacob, Jacob fathered Judah. The list goes on and on until she reaches verse five. And suddenly in that verse, she sees the name of the one who is standing right beside her. For Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab, Boaz fathered Obed by who? By Ruth. The goodness of the Lord was standing right beside her, and it would only be a matter of time until she saw it once again. So maybe if she was able to read Matthew chapter 1, she would say, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, there stands a smiling, a smiling face. You see, God had no intention of leaving Naomi empty. So in his quiet sovereignty, he's been laying the foundation for the greatest demonstration of his faithfulness to her and his faithfulness to anyone else. God is great and God is good. And we must cling to these realities like Ruth clung to Naomi, especially when we face various sufferings and trials, tragedies, adversities, hardships, all that corresponds with life in a fallen world, we have to cling to these realities. We got to learn to interface with the reality of who God is, and that means at least three things. It means at least three things in light of this portion of Ruth's story. I think, I think one, interfacing with the reality of God means that we become honest with God about how we feel in a given moment that we remain honest with God about how we feel in a given moment. Naomi is saying true things about God, but she's also saying true things about herself. She feels empty. She feels bitter. She's expressing that to the Lord. Did you know you can honestly express to God what you are feeling in a given moment? If we're reading the book of Psalms correctly, the book of Psalms over and over and over again, you find these worshipers of the Lord expressing themselves in deeply emotional ways. If they're angry, they express their anger. If they're fearful, they're expressing their fearfulness. If they're bitter, they're expressing their bitterness. Naomi is doing that here, and our worship of the Lord would be served well by learning to express ourselves to him honestly. This means that you and I don't have to paste plastic smiles upon our faces each time we approach God in prayer. It means we don't have to paste plastic smiles on our faces each time we gather with others to worship the Lord. 
It means we bring to the Lord all that we are really feeling, all that we are really sensing in a given moment, and we give it to the Lord. He knows about it all anyways. We don't have to hide it. We're just deceiving ourselves if we think so. God isn't intimidated by our honest expressions. He isn't intimidated by our honest emotions. He knows that when we get to this point in our discipleship, expressing ourselves honestly to God is liberating. It is rejuvenating to the soul. It serves to set our hearts free free from anything that would lead to our floundering rather than our flourishing. So we want to remain honest with God about who we, how we feel in a given moment. A second thing we want to do as we interface with the reality of God together is we want to remain aware. We want to remain aware of how God ordinarily helps hurting people. Remain aware of how God ordinarily helps hurting people. You see, God provided for Naomi in this story not through a flashy miracle, and not through an overt expression of divine intervention. Instead, he provides for Naomi through the loyal presence of Ruth, a most surprising person being that she was a Moabite. You see, God ordinarily helps hurting people through what's called the ministry of presence. The ministry of presence. Now put yourself in Ruth's shoes for a moment. Imagine what Ruth was thinking when she heard Naomi say out in that outburst, the Lord has brought me back empty. Now, it would have been very easy for her to object and say, wait a second, have you forgotten about me? I've devoted my life to you, and yet you're saying you're empty? But she doesn't object. She doesn't assert herself into that conversation. She doesn't say anything. She just stands silently, yet presently by. See, although Naomi doesn't see Ruth as a gift of God's grace to her and a sign of his goodness to her, She doesn't see it yet, but she soon will. See, God ordinarily hurts, helps hurting people through the loyal and oftentimes silent presence of others. This means for those of you who are suffering and are struggling, you you must understand how important it is for you, if you are suffering, not to isolate yourself from the community of faith not to detach yourself from the gifts of God's goodness and the gifts of God's grace that are present in the community of faith. So if you're suffering, don't suffer in isolation. And don't feel like if you're suffering, you have to paste a plastic smile on your face before you join us on Sundays, before you step into your missional communities, because that is not true. In our sufferings, we don't want to isolate and we don't want to cut ourselves off from the gifts of God's grace and the expressions of God's goodness. But then at the same time, if you are someone who's present with those who are suffering, you are ministering to someone who's hurting, you got to get to a point where you learn not to take what they say personally. You see, the adage is true that hurt people hurt people. And if you've ever tried to help a hurting person, chances are you got hurt in the process. But we must not get defensive in those moments. We must not fight back in those moments. Instead, we want to quietly provide a ministry of presence, giving them a tangible expression of God's goodness, one that they may not see in the moment, but one they will see later when the sand is washed from their eyes and they can see the goodness of God clearly once again. But then third and finally, if you're gonna interface with the reality of God in this moment, we have to remain aware of who God is despite what we're going through. Remain aware of who God is despite what we are going through. Here we learn that God is sovereign, that he is great, and God is good. He has a plan. Now, we may not understand how these two realities are equally true all the time. How can God be sovereign and good at the same time? If he is sovereign and I'm suffering, he must not be good. If he's good and I'm suffering, then he must not be sovereign. And we like to pit these two realities against each other, but when we do, we're doing ourselves a disservice and we were denying the reality of who God is. We have to understand in these moments that we are limited creatures. There's a roof to our reason. That's why faith is required. I don't care how smart you are. I don't care how intellectual you are. I don't care how how philosophically savvy you are. There is a roof to your reason, and at some point, you're gonna have to check your reason for faith. And it is possible that God is gonna discipline you by leading you into adverse circumstances that leave you scratching your head, wondering what is going on, and you can't make sense of anything. Well, maybe that's the point. 
Maybe the point is God wants to kick up faith in your heart. He wants to stir up trust in your life. Now, we may not know why things go down in our lives the way they do. We might not know why life seems empty at times, but we can turn our attention to the greatness of God, the goodness of God. We can focus on the plan and the purpose of God to send Jesus into the world, and in that moment, we can discover what the answer is not. We can consider the coming of Christ into this world and and be convinced that God is great, and we can be convinced that God is good because he worked out a plan to send forth Jesus to do something for us that we could never do for ourselves, to fill us up once again. Now, one of the interesting things about just before Jesus' birth, do you realize that God basically went silent for 400 years before Christ was born? No prophets were speaking. No revelation was being given. 400 years from the close of the Old Testament and the opening of the new, silence. But God's silence doesn't mean absence, and God's silence doesn't mean inactivity. God's silence does not mean that God is no longer sovereign, and it doesn't mean that God is no longer good. No, for those 400 years, God was continuing, moving things forward, bringing all of time and space to the right moment when it was time for his son to be born in a place called Bethlehem. The clearest demonstration of the greatness of God, the clearest demonstration of the goodness of God coming to us at just the right time when Jesus would be born. And then we would follow his life all the way to the cross once again to see the greatness of God and the goodness of God in his crucifixion. Only to go from the cross to the empty tomb again to see the greatness of God and the goodness of God and the resurrection of Jesus. If you want to be convinced that God is great and good all the time, what do you do? Well, you think about the manger, you think about the cross, and you think about the empty tomb, and you remain aware of the reality of who God is regardless of what you are going through in a given given moment. God is always working to bring about the eternal flourishing of his people because he is great and he is good. He's strong enough to do so, and he is kind enough to do so. We want our hearts to rest in that reality all the days of our lives. Whether we are in a feast or whether we are in a famine, God is sovereign and good in the midst of it all. Let's pray.